0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you all for coming. It's delightful to see you and see familiar faces. It uh, does my heart good. And tonight, as I promised, I'm going to talk about uh, practices to develop our mindfulness in the midst of conflict. If you're like me, when conflict arises in my life, I very often get caught in my script, what a psychologist would call my script, my automatic pattern of relating, of speaking. And a big part of my script refers back to two weeks ago when I talked about the Buddha's basic teachings on conflict, and I talked about four different um, entanglements that he pointed out to us. And one that catches me quite often is, I'm right and you're wrong. And I speak from that place of being right, and of course that's very engaging for whoever I'm in conflict with. They feel warmly received by me and they very quickly get how right I am. (laughs) So that's my script. It doesn't work well, but I do it anyway. (laughs) And I suspect that you have one also. So the practices that I'm going to talk about tonight are uh, specific methods that the Buddha taught for us to be aware of our script, overcome our script, and be in the midst of conflict in a more skillful way. And just a quick review of the last two weeks. I talked about, I reframed the Four Noble Truths as practices also to use in the middle of conflict. Knowing the conflict of dukkha, the dukkha of conflict, I mean, So when conflict is arising, I can know it. And what does that knowing mean? It's a careful attention just like knowing my breath. Ah, this is conflict. This is what conflict feels like. I'm in conflict, or whatever note I want to use. So I'm on red alert. I'm aware that conflict is there. And then secondly, the Buddha taught that our clinging to what we like, our aversion to what we don't like, or when we go unconscious and don't really notice what's going on, that clinging is the source of our conflict. So red alert, I know I'm in conflict. I start to listen for what am I clinging to? What am I holding on to? For me, it's almost certainly there's some place that I'm being right. And as soon as I find that, I see, ah, this is clinging. I know the clinging. I know the clinging. So I'm a long ways towards freedom in those two knowings. And at some point, I let go, maybe only for a moment, and then my conflict partner says something that hooks me again. But in that moment when I let go, I know, ah, this is the cessation of conflict. This is the absence of conflict. It's powerful to know those distinctions because otherwise I'm just caught. I'm in a miasma. I'm not really with whatever is arising. And then finally, the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path, the steps, several of which I'm going to talk about tonight specifically to help us deal with conflict. And then last week I talked about the five aggregates of clinging, the specific fine distinctions that the Buddha taught to help us know not only that to which we're clinging, but know the aspects of it so that we can break down exactly where we're caught. So one aspect, one aggregate is the form of whatever is arising, the material form, the way I see it. Often that's what hooks me. I react to the way someone is looking at me or the way they're sitting or the way they're walking or the way they're dressed. I have judgments about them. I react to the form. The second one is feeling. I have a feeling of aversion or I have a feeling of liking or I have a feeling of numbing out and I react to that feeling. And then there's secondary emotions that arise from those three primary feelings. We always have one of those first when we are clinging to something. We like it, we don't like it, or we just sort of numb out and we aren't aware. And then our emotional state arises. The third aspect is the concept, the perception that I have of it. I name it in some way. And as I talked last week, neuroscience tells us this is what is called... A perception in neuroscience is called an invariant representation. Our mind makes an invariant representation. It's the top-down cortical processing. I create this representation. Look at that form that I don't like. That person who's got their pants down almost to the, ground and they're surely gonna fall off and how in the world are they holding them up and walking I have a judgment of that that wonderfully funny commercial with a guy doing his uh, cell phone and going up the escalator not noticing that his pants got caught in the escalator and they came off that was one of my favorite commercials so I see that particular form I have a feeling of aversion And I've got a concept, a judgment, about that particular way of dressing, that gangster way of dressing. And I don't see the reality of that person. I just see my judgment. An invariant representation, we know a flower, for example, it helps us to process information quickly. And we have so much stimuli, we create concepts so that we know things quickly. That's a good thing. We can survive. We can walk around. We can tell who's a friend or a foe. The bad thing is that stops our mind from seeing what's really there. We don't process beyond that invariant representation, that perception or, con- or concept. The Buddha taught that we just see that concept and we block out everything else. And of course when I'm being right, I'm dominated by my concept of what happened. I'm not seeing all of what's there because I literally don't process it. And then there's the intention or the volitional aspect. What I am, and I'll talk more about intention tonight. What is my desire behind that. What am I wanting to have happen? What am I wanting? What am I needing? What's my intention? If my intention is to move my hand, then I know that it arises prior to the movement sometimes, and sometimes the movement creates the intention. It's a very subtle aspect. And then I know the actual consciousness. So form, feeling, perception, intention, and consciousness. Those are the five aspects of clinging. And with those five aggregates, or aspects of clinging, I create a story, and that story is what grabs me over and over again. And I told you the story about my mother and when I was a little baby. What happened to me in that bedroom in Pickens, and how that story dominated, came to dominate my view of women who love me. And we all have those experiences that create invariant representations, and our minds go back to that pattern over and over again. The yogis call it a samskara. In neuroscience, it's called a neuronal pathway. And our brains literally go there. We think we're thinking. And that's our biggest problem. We're not thinking. A thought is arising, stimulated by some input, some form or feeling or concept, and our brains go right down a groove, an invariant representation, a neuronal pathway. And I think it's because you did something. Actually, it's because I have a groove that gets stimulated by what I perceived. And whether you did it or not, we could never know because you only see part of what's happening and I only see part of what's happening. The rest of it, neither of us sees. And we wonder why Congress can't get along, we can't get along. There's so much divorce There's so much craziness in our world. Humility is important. Great humility when dealing with communication and conflict. But here's the good news. Neuroscience also tells us that our brains have plasticity. We used to think, up until very recently in fact, that our brains had plasticity up to a certain age. Most of us are beyond that age. (laughs) But the good news is that neuroscience was wrong. Our brains have plasticity till they throw dirt in our face. We can change those grooves. It gets harder because they're deeper, but we can change those grooves, and that's the purpose of mindfulness practice is to help us create new neuronal pathways, new ways of seeing, new concepts to become aware of the concepts that I have about you that are catching me and I'm right and you're wrong and be able to write them anew, create a new record, create a new groove. And here are ways to do that. I've got seven. We'll see if I can get through all seven. I'll tell you what they are. Two what are called Brahma-Vihara practices. Metta and Karuna, loving kindness and compassion. Mindfulness of the body and the breath, the first foundation of mindfulness. Wise intention, the second step on the eightfold path. Wise speech, the fourth step on the eightfold path and empathic listening, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about how to structure a difficult conversation. So, maybe I can get through all that, we'll see. I won't talk fast, I can't do that. It's not in my nature. So, how many of you have any experience with the Brahma-Viharas, metta? Have you heard, taught about it before, some of you? Okay, about half and half. So the important thing about these two practices, loving kindness and compassion, they work. That's important. Remember I told you the first night, those of you who were here two weeks ago, about my experience with Mr. James. Between my unconscious reactive phone call with his staff, And when I had that very difficult meeting with him and my boss, I did hours of metta for Mr. James. Now, what happens when you do metta for someone like that? What I saw was all my judgments of him. It was not like a pleasant, fun experience doing metta for him. Because all my judgments of him Arose rose for me to see. I could feel them in my body. So how the practice of metta works, to those of us who have a Christian background, it sounds a lot like prayer, but it's way different from prayer. The purpose really is to tenderize our hearts, literally to make our hearts more tender, The Buddha taught four Brahma-viharas, or guardian meditations, and in basic Vipassana practice, we focus on the breath. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. That's the object of our focus. In metta practice, we focus on repeating four phrases silently to ourselves. And the classic phrases are May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. So I'm wishing safety, happiness, peace, good health, physical and mental, and life with ease. And I'm repeating that over and over. And I create my own phrases, because those phrases need to have meaning for you, so it may be, may you be safe and protected from all harm. Or may you live in happiness and peace, would be the second one. Whatever words work for you. And I begin with myself. So I'm saying, may Daniel, may I be happy. And just do that right now with me, with yourself. You don't have to close your eyes. Just May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. May I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be peaceful, may I live with ease. As we do that over and over, what? arises for me and for you as well are all my judgments of myself. Sometimes it's very hard to do it for myself. And you will perhaps notice the same thing. And that's the purpose, is to see that and see, ah, I don't have a very good opinion of Daniel right now. I'm not feeling very good about myself. I'm not praying to some external being to make Daniel happy, peaceful, healthy, and live with ease. I'm not looking outside for someone to come and bless me. I'm training my mind to think that way about Daniel. That's the purpose of metta practice. So I do it for myself, which is hard, And if you do the practice and find that difficult and you have a pet, sometimes it's really good to start with your pet because that's easier. And then for a benefactor, someone that you know holds you in the highest regard. So you don't generally have much trouble doing it for a benefactor. It could be your grandmother or your great aunt that you just knew she adored you unreservedly. And they don't have to be alive. They can be someone who's passed on. Then you do it for a good friend. And then you do it for a neutral person. I did it for years, for example, for the guards at the court, the federal courthouse down in San Francisco where I go. I notice that I just go in there and show them my badge and I leave. And I go in there and I show them my badge. I hardly pay any attention to them. So I started doing meta for them. And I started noticing, oh, these are real people. They're not just automatons standing there. And I started being curious about what their names were and having a chat with them. And my whole relationship, not only to them, but actually to go into work changed. Because I wasn't just, oh, geez, I'm going to work. Oh. I was interacting with someone. So a neutral person, and often they shift from being neutral after a while. Neutral means... You, don't, you know them, they're in your life, but you don't really pay much attention to them. The person at the gas station or at the grocery store that checks you out, etc. And then the difficult person. And it won't surprise you that for years, Mr. James was my difficult person. <laughs> <clears throat> and then for people all over the planet in different categories, everybody in my neighborhood or everybody in... Uh, Redwood City, or everybody in California, or all the women in the world, or all the children in the world, etc. So that practice is both a concentration practice. It helps to build concentration in the mind, because I'm repeating these fate phrases silently. You'll notice that it's easier to stay focused on your object of concentration when you have a phrase like that to repeat, then it is, it's, it's easier than staying with my breath to do that. So it builds concentration and you will see that it tenderizes your heart. And so, before every medita- mediation that I do in court, I do meta for the lawyers for the plaintiff, that's the person who's bringing the lawsuit, I do meta for the lawyers for the defendant, I do meta for the plaintiff, I do meta for the defendants, and of course I do meta for myself. And I notice the judgments that I have for these people, some of whom I've not even met, because I've just read about them. But I've already formed opinions, because guess what, I'm a human being, and so are you. You form opinions like that, that's what we do. So I notice those and I'm shocked and I go, whoa. And when I walk into the room after having done a couple of hours of metta for these people, I have a completely different way of relating to them and being with them. So if you're having conflict with someone or at work, if you're having a difficult process, in preparation, do metta for the people, including yourself. So that's the first practice. Joseph Goldstein, who's a great teacher and uh, uh, one of the founding people who brought insight and Vipassana meditation to the US. He founded with Jack cornfield and Sharon Salzberg the Insight Meditation Society in, in Barrie, Massachusetts loves to quote a W.H. Auden line, love your your good neighbor with all your crooked heart. And I think that captures the concept of metta. And give the practice the benefit of the doubt. It is challenging to begin with. And if you're really interested in learning about it, I'm not expecting that you will retain this from this talk. Sharon Salzberg has a wonderful book entitled Loving Kindness, and you can also find these practices online, and Gil has teachings about them on the website here at IMC as well. So, doing metta. Karuna practice, compassion practice, works exactly the same way. The phrases are different, they're simpler. It's simply, may you have peace or may you be happy, may your suffering cease. Because the distinction between loving kindness, loving kindness is sort of a friendly attitude towards people, compassion is really being with someone who's suffering and connecting with that suffering. So may your suffering cease, may you be peaceful. Just those simple phrases. Otherwise the Karuna practice works the same way, the same categories of people, the same process of repeating those phrases, getting that it's not prayer, getting that it's to tenderize my heart. So that's the second practice. And again, that's in preparation for a conflict conversation. Now I wanna talk just for a minute about what I call in the mediation world, convening a process. So I'm in conflict with someone and I want to talk with them. Just calling them up or sending them an email and asking them to talk with me may not be a skillful approach. The Buddha talks a lot about how we approach people and how we set up a conversation and having the ritual of it. So convening is the ritual of creating the space for a conversation. I may want to think, for example, of inviting a mutual friend of the person I'm in conflict with to come and be just a silent witness, what I would call a keeper of the heart, They're there just to silently meditate and hold the heart space for us as we have our difficult conversation. If they're more skilled in communication, maybe they might even facilitate the conversation. But just having someone as a keeper of the heart makes a difference. Thinking a long time about how I invite this person. Maybe it's a nice, beautiful note with a handwritten, put in the mail, snail mail, something that's way out of the ordinary for our time, but shows a higher intention. If it's a group of people, maybe you think about how to, where to bring them together, where to have the conversation, how to set up the room, what are the circumstances that you want to have this conversation just grabbing someone on the fly at work and saying, I'm upset with you, I'd like to talk to you, is sort of the far end of the kind of convening I'm talking about. Being more thoughtful in how I approach, how I set it up, how I create a space for that conversation. It's especially true in a couple when we're married and we're having a conflict sometimes we sort of huff around for a few days and if one of us set up a nice room and lit some candles and turned the lights down low and set up two chairs facing each other my sweet little daughter Jessica had seen me do this so many times that when she was five years old she would sit her mom in a chair and say now mommy you sit here and daddy you sit here and look at each other now and Mommy, you begin, and Daddy, you wait and listen to everything that she has to say. About that time, my wife and I were over whatever upset we had. It was impossible in the space of Jessica's convening to hold on to it. But she had watched us do that, and so she had a sense of what it took to create the space for a conversation. So that's the idea of convening. Be thoughtful about it and careful and sensitive, and you'll create a beautiful ritualistic space. And then think about how to structure, not just the getting together, but what's it gonna look like. Maybe you have a meal first, or maybe you go for a silent walk, or maybe you sit in meditation together, if they're into that. Do something to begin with, And then you created an agenda, perhaps together, or perhaps you in your invitation list a possible agenda, but invite their feedback into the agenda so that you co-create the agenda. So think about how you gather together and how you then structure that meeting so that it has some beauty and grace and ritual to it and not just on the fly and you create the conditions for a more powerful and meaningful conversation, especially in the overwhelming busyness of our world. So the Brahma-Vihara practices, loving-kindness, metta, karuna, compassion to prepare and tenderize my heart, maybe for several weeks before I do a very beautiful convening and structure a very careful meeting for this difficult conversation. So then I'm there, and my conflict partner is sitting across from me. What do I do then? The first practice is our meditation practice, our mindfulness. So I bring myself into that first foundation of mindfulness. The Buddha taught that there are four fundamental foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of feelings. The feelings, the two level of them. The, I like it, I don't like it. It makes me go unconscious, numb. That level of feeling, which we have, that's the reactive one that we have to everything. And then the second level is the emotional content that arises. If I like something, it makes me happy, I get excited. If I don't like something, it makes me angry or sad, I have some secondary emotional reaction. So of the body, of the feelings, of the, uh, I'm drawing a blank, of the emotion, the, the, uh, Dharma is the fourth one, the great, the teachings of the Buddha. And finally, sorry, it's just hopped right out of my head. It will come to me. The focus in this conversation, however, is my mindfulness practice of the body and the breath. So I'm sitting with my conflict partner and I'm aware of my breathing constantly, while I'm talking and while I'm listening. I am practicing mindfulness during this conversation. What happens if I lose my conversation, my mindfulness? I get lost in the conversation. I become what's happening. The false sense of self gets created because I get caught. The mindfulness creates the space for me to notice and be aware of all that's happening around me, which has helped me to remember the third foundation of mindfulness, which is the mind states that arise as we're meditating. So I have the body sensations, I have the feelings, and then I have certain mind states, concepts, thoughts, patterns of thinking, reactive thinking, and then the various categories of teachings, the Dharma that the Buddha taught. Those are the four foundations. But for the purposes of this conversation, this conflict conversation, I'm saying focus on the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of your body and your breath. When I am mediating, I am on a multi-track Thinking process awareness process and we all have that capability but we have to train our minds to use that capability mostly it's like watching a movie if a movie is really exciting you know the feeling of getting caught into the movie so that it's not so much a movie and when it's scary we actually get scared and when it's exciting we actually get excited and when it's tender and loving we either go Ugh, or we get caught up in the tender and loving part <laughs> but it's just a movie it's just light flickering on a stage but we get caught in it we're that way with our lives we have to remember that we're in a journey. A journey is arising for us and these are the events that are happening and if I'm mindful of my breath and body, I create some space. And in that space, wisdom, heart arises. When I am so identified with the conversation, with you and my anger towards you or my upset with you, When I'm completely identified that's the false sense of self that the Buddha teaches about that hooks us and causes us to lose consciousness and awareness and become very unskillful. When I can just create that space and being grounded in my body, breathing, and when you say something that upsets me, I'm going inhale, Exhale. I'm hearing you, I'm listening, but I'm practicing. I'm being in my meditation. I get hooked and then I remember, just like when I'm sitting. I get lost in a thought pattern and then I wake up and I come back to my breath. The same in a conflict conversation. So when I'm mediating, I'm being aware of my breath, I'm seeing what's happening with my body and I notice I've gotten all scrooched up like this and I'm tight and I relax and open it up. I'm listening to you, whoever's speaking, and I'm being aware of my thoughts in reaction. So I've got at least four tracks going. And when I have a group of people in the room, I'm being aware of their breathing and their body and how they're reacting. So that's the fifth track. We can all do that. We have to practice our mindfulness to do that. So in the conversation, being aware of that first foundation of mindfulness, being aware of my body, is the most important. And then wise speech. How am I speaking? And the Buddha taught five wonderful principles of wise speech. My intention, truthfulness married with kindness. So just telling you the unvarnished, this is the way I see it, truth, generally doesn't work so well. But if I see that that's married to kindness, I temper my truthfulness in a way that has a better chance of being received. So I'm aware of my overall intention, which I'll come back to in just a second. And then I speak truthfully, married with kindness. And then the other two are timeliness, married with helpfulness. So how many times have you been in trouble and you've talk to your friend that you're really close to to tell them the grief or the suffering to share with them. And they immediately have several very helpful suggestions for things for you to do to help you with this problem. They know exactly what you should do. And we all know that feeling. It doesn't feel good because that's not what we're needing in that moment. We're needing to be heard, not to be directed and told what to do. So if I'm wanting to be helpful with my wise speech, the timing of my help is important. So I have an overarching intention that I clarify. Am I intending to really skewer you with the brilliance of how right I am and how wrong you are? That's not so good, wise speech. So I'm aware of my intention. I take truthfulness tempered with kindness and I take helpfulness tempered with timeliness and I create the conditions for wise speech. Our words are so powerful. It's an ancient concept, the power of the word. If you have any Christian background, you've heard the f- first chapter of the Gospel of John, the first verse. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. I know my Southern Baptist preacher father would hate to know this, but centuries before the Gospel of John was written, the Rig Veda, one of the early Uh, Brahmic Hindu scriptures. In the beginning was Brahman, with whom was the Word, and the Word was truly the Supreme Brahman. Now I know it would really upset some fundamentalists to know that John plagiarized from the Rig Veda of all places, (laughs) but I was once at a beautiful ashram on the James River in Virginia, uh, actually donated by Carol King one of my early yoga teachers. And in it there was a shrine to each of all the world's great religions and one of the shrines was to the African native religions and in that shrine was this, my favorite. In the beginning was God, today is God, tomorrow will be God. Who can make an image of God? He has no body, he is a word that comes out of your mouth. That word, it is no more. It is past, and still it lives. So is God. It was written by Ba Mubita of Zaire. So it's an ancient tradition of human wisdom, the power of our word. So I've done Loving-kindness and compassion practice to prepare. I've structured and convened carefully. As I'm sitting with you, I'm practicing the first foundation of mindfulness. I'm aware of my body and my breath, and I'm practicing wise speech. And lastly, I listen. It's a strange concept in this time, I recognize we're so busy talking that we don't really listen. Because while you're talking, I am listening, but I'm listening inside my head to the wise and wonderful things that I'm going to say as soon as you close your mouth just enough for me to hop right in with my brilliance about how I'm right and you're wrong. That's what we call listening. But I want to offer you the distinction of listening with empathy, empathic listening. And we don't have time for me to give you an experience of it, but I'll give you the structure of it. I carefully listen just to what you say. And since I'm practicing my mindfulness, I'm staying with my breathing, I'm staying aware of my body, I'm noticing when I get up into my own thoughts, and I'm pulling myself back to my breath, and your words are the focus along with my breathing. And I do my best to keep my mind quiet while I hear you. And then after you're done, or at some point when I say, let me make sure I've heard what you say so far. And I summarize in a non parroting way, the content of what you've said, and I do my best, this is really important, I do my best to name the emotion that I've heard. You're really angry, or you're really upset, or you're really hurt. And you might say, no, and that's okay, because then you'll tell me what emotion you're feeling. And you might say, no, you didn't get that content right. You won't say it like that, but you didn't, that's not what I said. And you might have said that, but been unconscious and not realized it. And you get a chance to correct yourself. So I hear even better. And it slows down the conversation. So I listen, I watch my mind and I see how I get caught up in my own thoughts, I come back to my breath and my body to anchor me, and I listen. And then when you're done, or when I've heard as much as I feel like I can contain, I say, let me make sure I got what you said. And I offer a quick summary, and then I name the emotion that I sense that you've been expressing. That's empathic listening. Several years ago, I was at a conference of an organization that I helped create called the Association of Conflict Resolution. And Arun Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi's grandson, was the keynote speaker. And he was talking about the power of our word and our speaking. And he told the story of how when he was a young boy, his grandfather, Gandhi, had left South Africa. If you remember any of the history of Gandhi, you know that Gandhi started out his work in South Africa and did a lot of uh, nonviolent work there and then went back to India, quite famous already by that time. And he left his son running his farm outside of the city of Durban, and Arun and his sister lived with his parents, Gandhi's son, there at the farm, and they were eighteen miles out of town and One day his dad said, "I have to go into the city for a conference. Would you like to go?" And Arun was a teenager, and you know he lived out in the country eighteen miles. he was a teenager. Would he like to go? Does uh, the cow jump over the moon or anything? Of course he would like to go, And he was very excited he would drive his father into the city and his mother gave him a whole list of shopping and things to do and into the city they went and he dropped his father off at the conference and his father said, now after you've finished the task that your mom has given you, take the car to the garage to get it serviced and be back to pick me up here at this spot at 5 o'clock. Rune said, fine. He rushed through all the tasks took the car to the garage and immediately headed off to the movie theater to see a John Wayne double bill. He got so caught up in the John Wayne double bill that he lost track of time. And it was close to six o'clock when he came to pick up his dad. His dad said, why are you so late? And Arun, not thinking, that the first place his father would have called would be the garage, says the garage was late and I had to wait. (laughs) And his father of course knew that that was a lie. Now, what would we have done at that point as parents? (laughs) And here's what Gandhi's son I never learned his name, so Arun's father did. He said, I'm going to walk home and contemplate what it is I have done as a parent that has caused you to feel you had to lie to me. And Arun said, Father, you can't walk home. It's 6 o'clock at night. It's 18 miles It's dark, and the road is rough in a country road. And his father got out of the car and started walking. And Arun, of course, could not leave him, he said. And so he drove slowly behind his father for the six hours it took to walk the 18 miles home. And he said it totally changed his life in terms of his appreciation for the power of our word and the power of our speaking with one another. We have so much unconsciousness and that unconsciousness arises from our untrained minds and we share it with each other constantly just as Arun did with his father. With these teachings these last three weeks and these practices of loving kindness, compassion, convening and structuring a conversation, being clear about your intention and wise speech and listening, you can change a little part And please don't take them all. One of the great mistakes I have made, and I finally learned it in my own personal development, is that there's a great gift in the mystery of the way the universe works. Everything is connected. John Muir has a wonderful quote that if you pick up anything in the universe, If you pick up anything, you will find that it's connected to everything in the universe. It's a little Zen koan. But everything is thematic. So take one of these practices. Whatever really spoke to your heart, they're all interconnected. Interconnected. And take the one that resonates with the theme of whatever's arising in your life. There is a theme to it. Just like if you were watching a movie or reading a novel and you were back in history class in the 12th grade and the teacher said, write a paper and tell me the theme of that novel. And you went, oh no. (laughs) There is a theme for what's going on in your life. If you steer by the circumstances, it won't work out so well. But if you listen for the theme and steer by the theme, there's a grace that arises because it's all connected and it all comes together in a different way. Listen for it. Listen for it in the way people speak to you. Listen for it in the way you speak particularly to yourself. And as that theme arises, use one of these practices and work on it. The others will come. When I pick up anything, I find that it's connected to everything. Find that theme. been a great joy to be with you these last three weeks. I appreciate all of you who have come. I think we've got time for about one or two quick questions. Yes, in the back. Microphone will be coming. Thank you. I had a question about the, the meta and the, the daily practice of doing uh-huh. that for the person you're having a conflict with? Yes. How long do you do that for every day? Do you do it 10 minutes? Do you do it once? Do you just when, you, when you're starting to do that? Be gentle with yourself. Whatever amount of time you now sit, if you sit for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes, if you sit for 30 minutes, for example, you could do it the whole time or you could do it for the first 5 or 10 minutes of it. Uh, I ride the bus to work, so I often do it on my bus ride, and I find that's a good time. It's really completely up to you. If you're driving, it's great to do loving-kindness practice while driving, especially for the other drivers. (laughs) Thank you. Sure. So let's sit up. Another question? No? Yes? No? Here's the microphone quickly. Yes? Thanks again for a great talk. Thank you. I'm thinking about your teaching and almost like two people speaking a different language, one speaking French and one speaking Hungarian, in the sense that you or I take these seven principles into the conversation. And God knows, so to speak, what the other person's bringing into the conversation. So yes. you kind of have to say, gee, I'm going to play by these rules and hope or whatever that the other person's going to bring, whatever, some degree of consciousness, humility, respect, whatever. So, where does that, how does that fit into this? The other person's uh, consciousness. Because you're trying to be so conscious. What about that? It's mostly irrelevant really yeah yeah it, there's a wonderful zen teaching it's called verses of the faith on the faith mind by sin Stong, the third zen patriarch and it's uh i don't know maybe two pages long and at one point he says make this whenever in order to come into contact with this reality and what he's meaning is the reality of the heart the reality of waking up whenever any doubt arises say to yourself not to in this not to Everything is there. So if I see you as separate from me, I have created the division. I have forgotten my teachings from last week that my concept of you is what I'm really seeing. I'm not seeing you. I'm seeing my concept of you. And so I'm holding you in that invariant representation. That's what I'm relating to. That's all in me, not to. So, in my experience, even with someone as extreme as Mr. James, when I am centered and clear, and in my heart, and practicing wise speech, and listening, and doing my loving kindness practice, and being aware of my body and my breath. You may be completely Looney Tunes. I can't control that, but I can be aware here, and stay here, and whatever arises, I get to deal with, and so do you if I put my energy into being worried about what's going to happen with you, knowing that you don't do the practices that I do, wishing you did, I've already created separation. I've already created two. And I'm done for. Not two. Let's sit for a moment. Take a moment to find the place in your heart where you're grateful to you for being here. To all these others who are here and together we've created the causes and conditions for these teachings to come for our benefit. So start with gratitude to yourself and then to all of us. And may the merit of our time together bless all of those especially that we love. May it bless us. And may it bring a moment of peace all over the whole wide world. Thank you very much. Hope to see you again sometime soon.